Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 362 of Forgotten Classics, where we are reading The Wind Boy. But first, let's do a podcast highlight. This one, I don't think I've ever mentioned, but I've known it's been around for a really long time. It's called Film Spotting. It began life as Cinecast, C-I-N-E, so like cinema, and it was about half an hour long, and then it got to be about 45 minutes long, and then suddenly it turned into something that had all these extra features, which were fine, but it was an hour and a half long, and that's usually half an hour past where I like to draw the line, and so I kept listening because I liked a lot of the features. It's got two hosts. Adam Kempinar has always been one of the hosts, and then various other hosts have been working with him, and sometimes they went into production or onto other projects. They've always been good, and they'll do a review of a main movie of the week. They'll review a few other things coming out, and then some of the other things they would do are the top five lists. So it might be top five movies that are related to the main movie they reviewed or top five moments that are like this or top five directors that do this kind of thing. And those lists were always interesting, too, because each of them would pick a top five, not just top five compiled from both of them. So you get to hear a lot of conversation, which is the fun part. For the most part, especially for the new movies, they do it without spoilers. So it's a really good source for getting just another viewpoint on an upcoming movie. Some of the other features that they've added, which I don't really care about, but a lot of people love because they have a huge fan base, are Massacre Theater, where the two hosts will act out a scene from a movie and then people see if they can guess which movie it was. And they'll have feedback and questions and quizzes and all that sort of thing, which I just don't care about. But you might. Anyway, the thing that pulled me back into them, because <laughs> I'd quit listening and kind of forgotten about them, unfortunately. But they also do these movie marathons, and they've done quite a few of them. And I like the conceit behind it, which is that they pick a director, a type of movie, an, an actor maybe, who they have no exposure to and they'll watch their top five movies according to most people and see if they like it or not so they'll do musicals they'll do westerns they'll do 70s science fiction they'll do all these directors who i've never heard of most of them but for instance they did ernst lubitsch who i love billy wilder who i love and to be fair who they've taught a class on. So it's not always people they don't know anything about. They did noir, which one of the hosts loved and the other had no exposure to. Turns out he is not a fan of noir, but it was interesting listening to them talk about all that stuff. And that's kind of what pulled me back in. They were doing a Vincent Minnelli marathon. And I knew of some of the movies, but I've never really watched anything just focusing on him as a director. So I liked listening to them talk about them. And then just recently, they did a whole show on The Lord of the Rings, because it's the 15th anniversary of the last of the trilogy premiering. And I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, movie and book, so I listened to that whole thing. So there are all kinds of different focuses they'll have. And one thing I have to say is listening to the marathons and listening to the Lord of the Rings episode made me realize that I'd really kind of missed them. And you don't have to listen to the entire show. 
you can, you know, look at the info for the show and they'll have the times in there when they're talking about different things. And I think at the time I quit listening, I wasn't really sophisticated enough as a podcast listener to know about those things. So that might have kept me listening a lot more, but I've been enjoying picking them back up. So I thought I'd mention them to you too. Now, let's get back to The Wind Boy. I liked these two chapters as a view of now that you can see a little deeper, see a little more clearly, not all the time, only under the right circumstances, how does this change your life? How does this help or hinder you? And we got to see a typical day at school where being a slow thinker is a problem for Gentian in math. (laughs) And I can relate to this. But I liked that they point out and that we see being a slower thinker doesn't mean stupid. It just means you're not super fast. It's okay to take a little time to think something over. That's something I think we've forgotten in today's world. We respect the quick, fast, genius but not slow and steady wins the race. And there's a place for that too. So we see that. We see Miss Todd is a bit of a bully, but she's sorry once things are explained. And we'd like to think that this helps her be a little bit better, be a little bit more forgiving of Kay and Gentian. I don't think that's necessarily proven out over time, but it's nice to see that there's potential for improvement even in the grown-ups. And what we saw last week is that there is more to Miss Todd than we know anyway, because of her devotion to music and because of the way that she was playing the organ, oh no, wait, it was piano, in church. So there's not much seen, but there's more than we can see on the surface. And then there's the secret door, which was totally cool, right? Finally some action, finally chasing that darn masker, finally tracking things down until the door, the secret door. I really like that no matter what, Kay always thinks of Rosemary first, and that makes him brave. He does what I'm not sure I would do. He, he goes to tell an authority figure so they can protect Rosemary from the masker. That's pretty good. That's a lot especially when you're young and you're under suspicion as you're continually being reminded. And it made me wonder, how does the masker know about this door? Where does the masker go afterward? They searched the entire house. What is up with this? So hopefully we're going to get a little more action on this masker scene coming soon. Let's find out. Let's dive in. Chapter 11. Gentian at the Loom When the children got back to the little brown house, they found their mother beside the lamp and the bowl of tulips, working with the plastilina. Already it was beginning to take shape again. They stopped by her shoulder to watch. She hardly knew that they were there, however, because she was so absorbed in what she was doing and because they wanted the work to go well, just as much as she did, and because they knew that if they spoke and called her mind away, she might do no more that night, they said not a word, but after a little, quietly turned aside. Kay settled down to a book he was reading, A Story of the Sea, and Gentian ran softly up to Nan's attic room. 
Nan was sitting in the open window, mending one of Kay's stockings. Beside her was a heap of brown and black stockings belonging to both the children, and a torn frock of gentians. Nan was holding her work close to the window to catch the very last ray of light. She looked up at Gentian and smiled a greeting. She knew very well what Gentian wanted, for both nights that Nan had been here, Gentian had come up to look at and touch the starry brightness night robe. So now Nan said, even before Gentian had asked permission, Yes, you may open the drawer and take it out. Oh, and may I bring it over there by the window? Yes, do. So Gentian pulled out the top drawer in the chest of drawers, and that to her was something like opening a door into the night sky. The night robe lay folded there so blue and starry. Gentian lifted it out with her fingertips. She had to look to make sure that there was anything there but air. It was so light. Slowly and careful that its trailing, wisping folds should not sweep the floor, she carried it over to the window and the last light of day. There she sat down on the floor at Nan's knee and held the wonderful robe in her lap. Her face, as she bent above it, was full of delight and wonder. Nan put by her darning to watch Gentian's face, so full of rapture. But Gentian was too lost in the happiness of gazing at the starry brightness to know that Nan was looking at her. At last, in spite of her delight, she sighed, but ever so softly. What is it, Gentian? Nan asked in words almost as soft as the sigh. Oh, I wonder if I shall ever have anything so beautiful. Nan did not answer at once, but stayed looking down into Gentian's lifted blue eyes. Then she said in a matter-of-fact voice, Anyone who has a nightgown like this has to make it, Gentian. I do not know whether you could learn to make it, but I think you might. But where would I ever get the starry brightness to make it of? Why, you would have to make that starry brightness. That is what I meant. Well, I could hardly do that. Why do you say so? Wouldn't you like to try? How could I try? Trying is the easiest end of it. It is the doing that will tell. Gentian was gazing up at Nan with hope and delight now in her blue eyes. If you want to try right away now, tonight, you will have to go through into the other house, the one above this one, remember? For the starry brightness cannot be made down here, not without giving a lifetime to it. Do you mean that little brown house we saw just above ours in the crystal light that day with the wind boy? I am to go up there? Yes. A young woman who lives in that house has promised me that she will help you with the making of a little starry brightness robe just for yourself. This morning when I was tidying my room, I suddenly saw the way up into that other house. There I found her, and we talked about you and the way you came at night to see my starry robe. And she herself said she would ask the great artist, their great artist, you know, to set up his loom for you. She is expecting you now. Oh, how kind she is! But what has the great artist to do with it? He has the loom and the colors. So it is to his house you must go if you are to weave the starry brightness. Run through now to the other house, and the kind young girl will take you. Gentian sprang up and ran to put Nan's night robe back in the drawer. Then she looked all about the little attic room eagerly, expectantly. But slowly her eager face grew blank. 
Oh, where can I go through? she cried. See, Nan, it is all just a hard old plaster wall. You will have to get very still and then remember what the wind boy showed us when he pointed. That is all. So Genshin grew very still. She even shut her eyes. And she remembered hard. Are you through? Nan asked after a minute. Why, no, said Genshin when she had opened her eyes and glanced about at the attic room, very dim now in the dusk. Can't you see I'm still here? Well, I'm through, Nan laughed, and I couldn't know whether you were too without asking, could I? You're through, through to the other house? Yes. But that can't be, you're here with me. I am through at the same time, and I do wish you would hurry and come too, for I must get back to those stockings. There are so many, and Kay needs his for school tomorrow. Genshin was almost in tears. She believed Nan when she said that she was through into the clear land, although she could not understand how that could be when she saw her here at the same time. But there was something in Nan's voice and in her eyes that made everyone who listened to her and looked at her believe her, no matter how strange a thing she said. But what can I do to come through, too? Genshin begged. Grow still. I am still. I don't mean that kind of still. Still with your body. I mean deep still. Still with your heart. So Genshin tried again. But how was she ever to grow deep still when she was so excited? Deep still, deep still, deep still, Nan said to her softly over and over. And when Nan's voice stopped, Genshin had grown deep still. And there she was, through into the other house. She was standing with Nan in an attic room very like Nan's own. Only even at first glance you would have known it was a room in the clear land, for the light was the clearest, serenest crystal, and though it was almost night here, as in the land below, there was no darkness in this twilight. The purple dusk was bathed in crystal. I can't stay with you because of the stockings, Nan said, but if you run down the stairs, you will find that kind young girl waiting for you somewhere, I am sure. I told her you would come, you know. Oh, please do stay, Genshin begged. When she had gone up into the clear land with Kay and the wind boy, she felt no strangeness, and when she had got through to the other school, she had not been strange either. But here in the clear land's dusk, in its purple shadows, even if they were crystal shadows, in this empty attic room, she did feel strange and alone. Please stay, she begged. Nan shook her head. No, I must go back. But run along down, dear, and bring back with you, if you can, a starry brightness night robe. At mention of the starry brightness night robe, Genshin forgot her strangeness. She stood on tiptoe to kiss Nan's cheek, and then, without another word, she ran out of the room and down the stairs. In her own house, the stairs would have been quite dark by now, but here in this other house, she could see well enough in the shadows. She went rather shyly through the hall downstairs to the sitting room, for after all, this house that she had entered from the top was not her own, and she had not even knocked. But the sitting room was empty. How like 
and how unlike their own. There was the big bowl of tulips on a little low table against the wall, only the curtains were golden, not brown. For a minute she thought she must be dreaming or that she was still in her own house after all, but as she stood there alone for a minute, the crystal light and a sweet stillness over everything made her know that she was indeed in the clear land. But where was the friendly young girl Nan had promised would be waiting? The strangeness had come back to Gentian's heart as she stood alone in this other room. She turned and very softly, lonelily, went out into the hall and to the door. There on the doorstone, in the crystal, lonely twilight, sat a girl about Nan's age, a girl with a clear, quiet face. Twilight was in her eyes and in her hair, and she was wrapped about in a twilight cloak. Gentian never learned her name, but then and always after she called her the Twilight Girl. I was waiting for you, said the Twilight Girl. Nan was sure you would want to come. I have told the artist, and he has set up the colors and left the loom ready. Gentian clapped her hands. Thank you, oh, thank you, if I can only make a starry brightness nightrobe like Nan's. Come then, the Twilight Girl said, rising and taking Gentian by the hand. They went out at the little swinging gate down the street and turned in at the artist's drive. Looking up at the mansion, Gentian saw how it was very like their own artist's mansion, except that it was whiter and more shining, and its towers and arches were lost in the sky. Up the wide, shallow marble steps they went, and in at the great front door, which was standing wide open. The twilight girl had not bothered to ring the bell, nor did she now look around for anyone. She led Gentian in as though the house were hers, and up the stairway. At first, Gentian felt a little shy about coming into the great artist's house. But then she remembered how Nan had said that children were free to go in and out of the great artist's house, just as the wind was free to blow in and out, and she felt strange about it no longer. Up and up and up they went, flight after flight of wide stairs, and at the top of each flight through winding passages, if Gentian had climbed so many stairs down in the world, her legs would surely have begun to ache. But here her sandals were silver, remember? And it was rather like climbing blue air. Indeed, the stairs were blue, and may very well have been air. Down one long passage she saw the great artist himself, pacing back and forth before a row of windows opening toward the twilight mountains. He was very tall and very noble and dressed in a flowing silvery robe. His head was bent as he paced or turned away toward the windows, and so he did not see Gentian and the twilight girl, or know that they had stopped to gaze at him. He is planning his work, the twilight girl whispered. And Gentian remembered how her mother, when she was planning a new statue, would pace back and forth in the same way. After that, they climbed a very steep, narrow flight of stairs that ended in a tower room. The windows all around were opened outward, and when Gentian stood in the room, she felt that she was standing high up in the sky where it turns to blue. Only now it was the soft blue of evening. By one of the windows, a little loom was set up, and before it stood a stool. Sit here on the stool the twilight girl said, and I will show you how to begin. 
so Gentian sat down on the stool before the loom. Her feet did not touch the floor, and the twilight girl smiled at that. You are, after all, a very little girl to be sitting at this loom, she said. But it will do no harm to try, and Nan thought you could make the starry brightness, even if your feet wouldn't touch. How grateful Gentian was to Nan for so believing in her. And when the twilight girl had shown her how to handle the colors and how to set to work, she said to herself, Oh, it's much easier than I thought it could be. I know I can do it. Now, the twilight girl said, giving all the colors into her hands, Try. But Gentian hardly had to try. She could do it right from the first. Very swiftly under her hands, starry brightness began to grow, and very soon she found that as she worked she could think, too. And she went on thinking her thoughts while her hands flew. She thought, Oh, this is going to be too beautiful to wear at night when no one sees me. I want to wear it in the day. When my schoolmates down there see me coming in and something so beautiful and strange, they will not laugh at me any more. They will stop talking about my being so queer and a foreigner. They will wish that they had a starry brightness and talk only about that. But as Gentian thought these thoughts, the threads had grown tangled and more tangled until now they were ended in a snarl, and the starry brightness was losing its starriness under her fingers. What are you doing? wondered the girl bending above her. What are you thinking of to let the stars go? Then Gentian told her what she was thinking of. The twilight girl shook her head. That was it, she said, her smile a little sad. Of course you can't weave a starry robe with those thoughts. Starry brightness is not to make you proud before others with. It is just for yourself. You can't make it except just for yourself. Do you mean my thoughts spoil it? asked Gentian, surprised. Of course, answered the twilight girl. You must give up wanting anybody to see your robe, and then you may be able to untangle the threads, perhaps. So Gentian gave up the thought, and the threads almost untangled themselves in her fingers. Again the weaving went on, swiftly and smoothly, and soon it was going so easily that Gentian began to think her thoughts again. As it grew in beauty and starriness, she thought, Oh, I want Mother to have one. Poor dear Mother, who works so hard and has no pretty clothes. How happy such a beautiful starry robe would make her. I would rather she had it than I. But the threads were getting tangled again, and the stars no longer forming. What are you thinking of now? The twilight girl spoke softly, bending at Gentian's shoulder. Something is wrong. See, there are no more stars. Gentian told her thoughts. The twilight girl's smile was not sad now, but it was grave. That was a nice thought, Gentian, she said. But this kind of a robe each one must make for himself. No one else can do it for him. You must make it yours in your thought, or it will not come right. That saddened Gentian for a minute. Where was the happiness in doing it just for yourself if you couldn't do it for someone else too? But after a minute her doubt about the happiness of it passed, and she tried again. Then the stars came quickly and flowingly, and the blue under Gentian's flying fingers trembled and grew deep into a sky. And Gentian thought, It isn't every little girl of eight who could make a thing so beautiful. I must be different somehow from most other children. 
but hardly had the stars at this thought begun to dim before without noticing she stopped. No, no, she said out loud. It was the artist who set up the loom for me and gave me the colors. I must be grateful to the artist. He could do it for any little girl he wanted to. And the twilight girl who had reached a hand to stop Gentian drew it back now, a light of gladness in her eyes. After that, the starry robe grew and grew. Sometimes, with her thoughts, the threads would go wrong again and begin to tangle, but then Gentian would rest a minute and get deep still. After that, her thoughts would change and all would be well. And soon those times ended altogether, and it was smooth work and swift. The starry brightness had grown almost large enough now for a night robe for Gentian, and it lay on the loom like a piece of the night sky. It was then that the great artist came up the narrow steep stairs into the tower room and stood behind Gentian looking down at her busy fingers. But Gentian had not heard him, so softly had he come. The twilight girl stood back so that he might see all. He nodded, and then stayed still, watching. Soon all the thread was used, and Gentian turned to look up at the twilight girl. When she saw the great artist above her there in his silvery robes, she got down from her stool and stood before him, awed and happy. "'You have done well, little human,' he said in a voice, the sound of which Gentian could never afterward remember. Perhaps Gentian should have thanked him for setting up the loom for her and letting her come to work on it. But she was too much in awe of him to say anything at all. She could only smile up into his deep eyes and be still. Then he stooped, and taking the starry brightness from the loom, handed it to her. She gazed her thanks out of her blue gentian eyes as she held the starry brightness against her breast. The twilight girl took her hand and led her away down the stairs. When they got back to the little brown house, the twilight girl said gently, Run up the stairs now, Gentian, and back to Nan, who is waiting. It will be easy enough for you to find the way through to the earth with that starry robe in your arms. Everything will be easier. She bent down and kissed Gentian on her cheek, a cool, kind kiss. The great artist was pleased with you. You should be very happy, she said. I am very, very happy, Gentian answered, and oh, I thank you. The twilight girl shook her head, smiling. You did it all, every bit, yourself. Nan will know. So Gentian ran away up the stairs, and when she opened the door into the attic room, she knew that she was back in her own world, for there was dark at the window, and Nan was sitting by a lamp, finishing the last stocking. Gentian ran to her and threw the starry brightness in a heap into her lap. How Nan's face shone then! Yes, I think it outshone even Gentian's. Now I will sew it up for you, she said, and tonight you may sleep in it. Oh, will you, and may I? Gentian clapped her hands. So under the lamplight, Nan sewed up the starry, filmy gown while Gentian knelt on the floor at her knee and watched. When it was done, she handed it to Gentian and said, now run away to bed before your mother remembers to send you. That will be a fine surprise for her. For once in her life, Gentian was only too eager to run away to bed. Chapter 12 On Paths of Night 
There was no need of a lamp in the room to undress by, for the stars had risen, and the room was silvery with their shining. Gentian's night robe by starshine was even lovelier than it had been by lamplight. The stars in it had a clearer radiance, and the blue quivered in a light all its own. The minute that Gentian had slipped out of her clothes and into this loveliness, she felt that she had become as light as the gown. Light as a feather, she thought. But then she knew at once that that was not right. She was lighter than any feather. For a feather must sometime flutter to the earth. But she felt that if she were ever to leave the ground, she could stay in the air as long as ever she liked. Oh, how wonderful, how wonderful, she thought. Of course, she had climbed the air very lately in the clear country. But in that crystal land, it did not seem like such a marvelous thing to do. Here in her mother's little brown house, right down here in the village where she lived, to climb the air would be a different, a stranger thing. Gentian got onto the one chair in the bedroom to gaze at herself in her mother's high mirror. The night robe looked like a blue cloud fallen about her, and the stars in it shone out softly radiant, lighting her hair and face. She clapped her hands. Then softly she opened the door and softly went out to the stairs and down. She stood in the doorway of the sitting room, looking at her mother and Kay, a merry laugh ready to break on her lips when they should see her there in her glimmering night robe. She wanted to watch the wonder grow in their eyes. But Detra was bent above the statuette, her eyes narrowed, while her hands worked cleverly and quickly, making the wind boys clustering curls. Her thoughts were all on her work, and she had forgotten where she was, even perhaps who she was. As for Kay, he sat beyond her at the other side of the table to get the lamplight, too. His coppery head was bent over his book, and his eyes following the pages never wavered. He was far out at sea on a sailing vessel, lost in another world, another time. Gentian stood watching her mother and her brother for many minutes, but they did not look up or feel that she was there. She could not get Kay's attention, of course, without disturbing her mother. And now that she saw how her mother was working, with the intent, narrowed eyes that Gentian knew so well, she dared not disturb her. Her heart sank a little, for she had longed to show them her handiwork. But after a little waiting there unnoticed in the doorway, she softly turned and went back up to the stairs to her room. Well, in the morning she could show them. She would go to bed now. So she turned back the bedclothes, and after kneeling to say her bedtime prayer, got in. At once she fell asleep. But it was not in the way she or any other little girl usually falls asleep. The minute her head touched the pillow, she felt herself slipping into sleep as into deep water. Only, of course, sleep did not take her breath away as water will when your head goes under. When her head went under in this water of sleep, her breath came lighter and lighter, easier and easier, until it was not like breathing at all it was so light. And then she forgot everything. She thought of nothing. <laughs> of course, she could never tell about that. That was the very deepest sleep a person can know. And the next minute she was wide awake. She had slept only the briefest while, but because it had been so deep a sleep and so dreamless, that while had rested her more than a whole night of just ordinary every-night sleep. Now she was suddenly wide awake, 
wider awake than she had ever been in her life, perhaps, here in her bed with the starlight pouring in at the window. She sat up, only it was not like sitting up at all, for she came up as lightly as the tulips had come up after the wind boy had run over them. And then she noticed that every movement she made was as she thought it, as though her thoughts did the moving and not her body at all. That was delightful. Thinking it, she got out of bed and went to the door. Why, this is the way the clouds move, and the wind, she thought. She went down the stairs as a petal floats from the cherry tree, and in a second she was sitting on the grass in the lamplight just outside the sitting room window. She crossed her arms on the sill and looked in. Oh, if they would only look up and see her now, how amazed they would be. The masker had stood like this, looking in, and just at first they might think she was the masker. But right away they would know better, and Kay would laugh. But what would her mother say to her being out alone in the night? Well, Gentia knew very well that ordinarily her mother would not like it at all, that she would never allow her to do such a thing. But in this night robe that made her so light, in this starry brightness, everything was different. Her mother would surely be wise enough to see that. Why, in this starry brightness, she was part of the night. She was the sky itself and the night wind. She belonged out here. Detra and Kay worked and read on, and never dreamed that Gentian was out there in the night looking in at them. After a little while, she turned away and moved like a cloud across the little grass plot, through the hole in the hedge, down the grassy paths to the stone steps that led up to the tulip garden. In the tulip garden, in the grassy center where the wind boy had slept, Gentian sat with her arms wrapped about her knees. How alone she was out here, how far from her mother and Kay back there under the lamplight in the little brown house. And as she looked toward the little brown house, she saw Nan's light wink out in the attic. Was Nan in her starry brightness, too? And would she come out into the soft night? Gentian thought of the wind boy. Why had she and Kay Saturday morning run away to play with the clear children and left him behind? Well, she would not play with the clear children again, unless they would let him play, too. But they must find the masker. Tomorrow night at dusk they must do nothing but watch. And when they did catch it, and the wind boy had torn off the mask, how splendid for them it would be. The wind boy would be happy again. He would look as he had looked that minute when he first awoke here at noon while Gentian was watching him. He would measure for silver sandals then, and the shoeman would be glad. He could go back to play with the clear children and be at home once more in the clear land and Gentian and Kay would play with him there and with the others. And then, too, once the wind boy was happy, Mother could make her statuette look happy, too, and ready to fly with all of him, for she would see him like that once he was happy and free of all that mask business. She would make him glad of his wings, and she would get the light across his brow. Well... Perhaps the masker was hiding somewhere out here, perhaps in that black shadow over there by the white birch at the edge of the garden. Gentian looked hard, but could see nothing, so velvet black was the shadow. Yes, the masker might very well be there, but she was not a bit afraid at the thought. 
In her starry brightness, she could not be afraid of anything so foolish and silly as that mask. Indeed, she could not remember now how it was that such a silly thing had ever frightened her. She turned her back on the velvet shadow, but her courage was not needed. The masker was not lurking there. If the moonlight and starlight could have sifted through the leaves of the white birch, gentian would have seen nothing but tulips, red, yellow, purple, white, with their petals closed in the dew. Gentian was now looking toward the artist's house, and she thought of Rosemarie, alone, asleep in her high nursery. How jolly it would be if she and Kay could only have her for a playmate. But hadn't the artist half promised it Saturday morning here in the tulip garden? If when he came back he should have forgotten, Gentian decided to remind him. For out here in her starry brightness, she saw how horrid it must be for Rose Marie, always alone. All the tulip gardens in the world, and automobiles, and pretty dresses, and famous grandfathers wouldn't make up to a little girl for being alone. I will be bold and speak to the artist about it, she promised herself. Then she looked off over the wood to the faraway mountains. They were as black and velvety as the shadow under the white birch. Nan came from the mountains, Gentian remembered. Perhaps she has gone back there now in her starry brightness for a visit. I shall go and look for her there. Then she rose and went toward the mountains. She went right across the tulip beds, not bothering about the grassy paths, just as the wind boy had done. But that was all right, for the tulips did not even bend under her feet. I cannot tell you about her journey, through air and starlight, toward the mountains, for I have never run along the paths of night. Even Gentian herself never found words to tell it in. But she did come to the mountains, moving with her thought, and stood at the top of the very tallest one, just above the spruce and pine and birch trees on a ragged ledge of gray, moss-covered rock. The village, looking back and down on it, was just a few pinpoints of light. But the sky was close. Oh, I want to know all about the stars, Gentian thought. Perhaps Nan can tell me. I shall ask her tomorrow, or tonight if I find her here. How many, many worlds there must be. I want to go to all of them and live in all of them one after another sometime. Above the mountaintop just beyond, a light that was not starlight suddenly caught her glance. It was moving toward her along the paths of air. Her eyes smiled, for she thought it might be Nan coming in her starry brightness. She stood waiting watching. Slowly it came toward her, through the starlight and the blue, and when it had come quite near, she saw that although it was someone, it was not Nan. It was much too tall, and she knew that Nan, even in her starry brightness, could never have just this clear, steady radiance. Gentian, standing there on her stony ledge on the mountaintop, became stiller than she had ever been in her life before. Yes, stiller than deep still. Her breath stopped. Her heart beat softly. It was as though she hardly lived. She stood straight and still with folded hands, and her eyes stayed open only because she dared not move her lids to cover them. The being passed very near her mountaintop moving slowly as to unheard holy music. 
He passed by, but as he passed he turned his face and looked down at Gentian standing still and small on the mountaintop. At his look, she covered her eyes with her hands and sank down on the moss-covered rock. She lay curled there, remembering brightness and beauty, lost in awe. But the face itself she never remembered, for it was not a face for a human child to see. When at last she looked up again, the bright being had passed by and was gone. It had passed behind the farthest mountain. For a minute, Genshin wanted to follow, to catch a glimpse again, if only from afar off. She took a step out into the air. But something stopped her. Perhaps it was the memory of her mother and Kay and her father out there, searching for them somewhere in the world. Whatever it was, it turned her about sharply and set her running fleetly along the paths of night toward the pinpoints of light that were the village and home. When she reached the tulip garden and floated down onto the grassy center, she saw that the little brown house was dark. Mother must have finished with the wind boy and Kay with his book and both have gone to bed. But where would Mother think Gentian had vanished to when she saw her bed empty? Gentian had not thought of Mother's being frightened by her adventure. She ran up the air and across to her mother's open window. When she stood in the still shadowy room, she was glad to be there. How it had happened that Detra, when she came to bed, had failed to notice that Gentian was not there in her own little cot, I cannot tell you. But she had not noticed, surely, or she would not be sleeping peacefully now. Gentian listened to her even, gentle breathing. I can never sleep in this starry brightness, she thought as she stood glimmering in the room. It is too wonderful for just a little girl. So, quietly, not to disturb her sleeping mother, she slipped it off, and feeling for her plain little cotton nightgown on its peg in the dark closet, she put it on instead. Then, still moving very softly, she folded up the starry brightness and put it away in the lowest empty drawer of her chest. When she closed the drawer, she felt that she was closing a door into the sky. But it was so still in the house, and she was so strange and lonely, she could not get into her own bed now and go to sleep. The memory of the brightness and beauty of that face that had turned toward her on the mountaintop, and the way she had almost gone after it beyond the mountains, was too keen. Softly, uncertainly, she stole across and stood beside her mother's bed in the farthest shadow in the room. She bent and touched her mother's cheek with her own. Who is that? Detra asked in a half-asleep voice. Who? It's Gentian, Gentian whispered and crept in beside her. Detra turned and folded an arm about her little girl. Why, you are cold, she whispered. Snuggle close. Oh, may I stay and sleep here? Yes, but why? I thought you were fast asleep. No, I was out in the night. It was so big. And then came the angel. I wanted you. Detra smiled sleepily to herself in the dark. What strange dreams you have, she murmured. Then she lay thinking about her little girl and wondering about her for a long time. But Gentian had fallen asleep almost at once, folded happily in her mother's arms.